Okay, let's just log into Skype. Hello? Hi, is that Dan? Yeah, it is. You can hear me. I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Okay, fantastic. Well, Dan, welcome to the commute. Thanks for having me. So we are going to have a very interesting conversation today because you have had a set of experiences that I think very, very few people will have had. But before we get there, I thought it might be useful for you to just tell the listeners a little bit about who are you? What do you do? Where are you based? So we can get a bit of a sense of the personality that is interested in these sorts of adventures. Sure. So I am originally from Boston in the US. Um, I have been in South Africa basically since 2010. And around three years ago, I started a company called Innovate, and we take uh, primarily South African business people all over the world to learn about the future of their industry. So for example, we have a trip leaving tomorrow night focused on the future of work. We're going to Israel and we're taking HR executives from some of South Africa's largest companies away for a week to think about the notion of work differently through learning about what's happening in a different country. Have you always been someone who's quite interested in adventure and unusual experiences? Definitely. So actually, the the reason I wound up in South Africa in the first place was because of my sense of adventure. When I was 14 years old, I convinced my father to take my brother and I on a holiday to Cape Town. And I just totally fell in love with the country, with the weather, the people, the diversity. And while we were in Cape Town, we visited a private school and the headmaster of the school joked and said, well, if you ever want to come to my school for one year, you're more than welcome to. And uh, I actually took him up on his offer and convinced my parents to let me come. So I lived in South Africa as an exchange student when I was 14 and 15. And then when I was uh, 21 as a university student in the U.S., uh, actually, sorry, I was 23. This was in 2010. I came to South Africa right after the World Cup. Uh, to interview those same people I had gone to school with as part of my undergraduate honors thesis. Mm -hmm. And one thing led to another, and I just wound up staying. And I've been here ever since. And a key part of our story is that you did ultimately, in fact, take South African citizenship. Yes, I became a uh, South African citizen in September of last year. It was um, quite a battle to get South African citizenship because the rules were not applied fairly to people who were not politically connected. And actually, my citizenship case made it all the way to Parliament, and the EFF fought for my citizenship, which was ultimately granted. Wow, oh, that sounds like a separate podcast. I def <laughs> definitely want to hear more about um, the EFF fighting for, for your citizenship. But earlier this year, you decided that you wanted to go on a really unusual holiday, and, and it wasn't to Brazil, you weren't looking at Italy, you weren't going to go and lie in Mauritius. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to take the holiday you took in January of this year. So there are certain parts of the world I've always been fascinated with. Of course, South Africa is one of them. Um, but, you know, other countries that I just learned about in school and they intrigued me uh, included North Korea, Iran, as well as some others. When I got South African citizenship, I said, OK, now I want to use my new passport to go somewhere where I previously couldn't go. And I was sort of casually Googling online tours to North Korea. And I found this uh, tour company. Uh, it's called Young. It's called it's actually uh, called Young Pioneer Tours. Mm -hmm. It's also UK based. It was founded by a very adventurous British entrepreneur who would actually be interesting for another show. 
Um, and um, it was uh, North Korea and other destinations your mother would want you to stay away from, which is their motto. Uh, and they did it at budget prices. So I uh, was sort of impulsive. And I said, you know what, I'm going to uh, fill in this form and express interest. And they got back to me quite quickly. And before I knew it, I had paid my deposit on a trip to North Korea, uh, which was uh, quite scary for me originally being from the U.S. It's now a felony for American citizens to visit North Korea on a U.S. passport. So I knew that this was a trip that very few of my fellow countrymen from back home would be able to embark on. And I, I knew that it would be possible that I would be the only American, in fact, in North Korea. And that's already been a fairly recent development. International tra travel to North Korea hasn't historically been encouraged, but it was only a few years ago that, that the United States, in fact, made it a felony to travel there. Yes, that's right. Um, this happened because there was uh, an American student who went to North Korea um, actually on the with the same tour company that I went with. His name was Otto Warmbier, um, and he um, allegedly tried to take down a poster in his hotel um, as a souvenir. And when he was leaving the country, he was detained and he was tried for what he allegedly did. And then sort of no one heard from him for over a year. And uh, when they did hear from him again, he was brought back to the U.S. in a coma. No one to this day knows exactly what happened. But after that, the Trump administration and State Department just deemed it too risky for American citizens to travel to North Korea. And so it is uh, possibly the only country in the world where it's actually a felony to visit for American citizens. Okay, so you make this decision, you pay your deposit, you've decided you're going to take this unusual holiday. How do your friends and family respond to this news? I knew that this was going to be a risky trip uh, because so few Americans visit North Korea. And I decided to only tell a couple of very, very close friends uh, in the event that, uh, heaven forbid, something happened. So there were about two or three friends. I gave them, um, you know, my itinerary, the details for the tour company, the details for the South African embassy in Beijing, which is accredited to the DPRK, Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Um, and I didn't tell my family and I didn't tell my colleagues or, or friends. Um, I was afraid that some people would talk me out of it. Um, and in fact, there were several uh, sleepless nights I had leading up to the trip where I said, oh, gosh, have I just made the biggest mistake of my life? Have I put myself in danger? Quite honestly, I was afraid of being used as a pawn while I was there because um, it's been alleged that the DPRK uh, uses Americans in the country as bartering chips when they're negotiating with the U.S. And given how few Americans are now in North Korea, I would have been one of their only options. So I was terrified. And I, I actually even emailed the tour company to say, sorry, I can't come anymore. <laughs> but then I had just too much FOMO the following day. And I said, you know what, I have to just go through with this. And I was really, really scared. But then, you know, when I got onto that plane to Beijing, which is where we had to uh, meet in order to then travel onwards to North Korea, the adrenaline kicked in and I said, you know what, I've already uh, embarked on this journey, so I just need to see it through. Okay, so so you've, you've gotten on the plane. That was my next question. How does one actually physically travel to North Korea? What is the route? Are there direct flights from Beijing? Do you have to go to South Korea? How do you enter the country? Typically for tour groups, they start in Beijing and you can either fly on um, 
Air Koryo, which is the North Korean national airline from Beijing to Pyongyang, which if I remember correctly, was about two hours. Mm -hmm. Or you take a 24-hour train from Beijing to Dedong, which is at the border town, and then it continues into Pyongyang. Um, Because it was a four-day trip, Uh, to North Korea, and I was on quite a tight schedule. I needed to get back for work. I actually flew to Beijing, and then we took North Korea's national airline. Um, It's actually rated by Skytrax as the only one-star airline in the world, and that in itself is quite an experience. (laughs) What what is a one-star airline? What are the features of a one-star airline? I'm sure SAA is working towards it. (laughs) Well, it's... um, I mean, the, the, the planes were older. I, I assume they probably originate from somewhere in the former Soviet Union. They had North Korean music and films on the screen. And they're very, the, the, the airline is very famous for its mystery meat burgers. It's mystery meat burgers. Oh. The only thing that you get during the flight to eat. And to this day, no one knows exactly what's in, that, what's in those burgers. Most of them <laughs> were tourists on the flight. Um, and there were also North Korean business people who were in China. And I remember when we were checking in in Beijing, it was a bit surreal checking in for a flight to Pyongyang. But people were sort of checking in, you know, television screens, electronic equipment. And I assume it's because they were business people who were then reselling uh, those electronics back in North Korea. Ah, OK. Uh, but you're not traveling alone, Dan. What does the rest of your tour group looks like? What, what sort of people are interested in traveling to North Korea? Who were they and where in the world were they from? So there were about 20 of us. Um, and again, I think it takes a special type of traveler to want to go to North Korea. So, you know, most of us were, ve- were most of us were young because it was a budget trip. Uh, we were all very, very well traveled because I think you need to be pretty well traveled before you start to go to less visited places like North Korea. There's sort of like a circuit that these types of people travel to. So North Korea is one of them. Iran is another one. Uh, the stands are very popular. As in Turkmenistan. All of those in Central Asia. Exactly. Yeah. So um, those former Soviet republics in the stands. So it's sort of it's I almost felt on the trip like I found my tribe. You know, I always felt very unusual growing up that I had this curiosity to travel to places that most people were afraid of. And suddenly I was with 20 other people from all over the world who were more or less my age, who were also fascinated by the same places. And most of them weren't rich. They had they were nurses and teachers, but they chose to prioritize their um disposable income on travel to very exotic countries. And also are clearly quite brave. Um yeah, some would say brave, some would say crazy. I, I, I thought it was really cool because I was also spending a week with people and I could just ask them, you know, what's it like going to Iran or what's Turkmenistan like? What's Iraq like? Yeah. Um so people that really shared this this passion for exotic travel, um, they were from all over the world. Of course, you know, we have many we had many Europeans, we had Canadians, um, many Aussies. A lot of the people were actually sort of living in Asia for the year, studying in Asia. And so this was just like a, a side trip that they did. My tour guide was Australian based in China. He's been to North Korea over 60 times with groups. And, and I mean, he said I was the first South African tourist that he had ever taken, uh, yeah. which I think just shows how a destination it is for people from South Africa to visit. I remember that when I, um, we were just talking about logistics. So basically, in order to travel to North Korea, it's the law. You have to go with an organized uh, tour company, with an organized group. 
that's accredited with the government. You can get a visa on arrival, which you're, you basically get a, a card beforehand in Beijing, which you then bring to North Korea, which essentially is your visa, although it's external to your passport. I actually opted for a sticker visa in my South African passport for the trip and thus paid a visit to the North Korean embassy in Pretoria. Which we have discussed on this podcast, yes. Yes, which um, which I don't think is a place that's uh, visited very frequently. Um, they were they were friendly. I am, invited me in. I waited while they printed my, out my sticker, uh, which they then placed in my passport. And they were very excited about my trip. And they said, you know, we want you to encourage more South Africans to travel to the DPRK when you come back. That's unexpected. So, yeah, they were quite excited. But again, I, I just think that uh, for South Africans, North Korea is really not a place that's on their tourist map. And maybe it is a place they should consider, especially if they have a, uh, a desire to see less visited places. Okay, so your, fl- your flight is arriving in Pyongyang. Um, you disembark off the plane. What are your first impressions of this secret kingdom? The airport was quite large and modern, uh, which was surprising considering that they have only one flight in and one flight out a day. But I mean, it's a large airport. Um, so I remember thinking that it was modern. I also, you know, sort of was looking around at who else was arriving in the country at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, again, North Korean business people, some people on my tour, um, as well as diplomats. There were only probably 50 tourists in North Korea during the week that I was there. There were just t- basically two tour companies that had tours going on at that time. So on the plane, it was either Western tourists from my tour, my, my tour group or the other one. Um, there are only around 4,000 Westerners that visit North Korea a year. I mean, it's one of the least visited countries in the world. And it was amazing because, as I said, there were 50 of us. And on some evenings, all 50 tourists in North Korea would eat in the same restaurant. So I, I could see the sum total of who was in the country uh, as tourists. You were there for four days. Is that right, Dan? Just four days in total? Yes. Okay. But they packed it in. They packed it in. So, so what does a tour itinerary in North Korea over four days look like? Where do they take you? What do you see? You know, I remember the very first evening when we arrived. Actually, before I go back to what we did, I think that something else that was uh, different about this tour is there were many rules that we had to adhere to. So even before coming to North Korea, we had to sign a contract that we would not bring a Bible into the country. This was a contract we had to sign with the tour company. Um, But I assume that all tour companies require uh, visitors to sign this. No Bible. We weren't allowed to publish photos on social media. Uh, so you were allowed to take trip. photos, but you weren't allowed to publicize them, uh, put them on, on. On, on, on social media. We weren't supposed to. We agreed to that. You have to be accompanied at all times by your tour guide. So there was no leaving the hotel on your own, wandering off on your own. Mm. You're not allowed to bring any materials in on North Korea, South Korea or Japan. Can you take your laptop or your iPad in? Yes, you can. I chose not to take mine. Um, I did bring my Kindle, however, but I made sure that there were no materials on the Korean peninsula on my iPad. It was interesting, though, because one of my fellow tourists brought a hardcover book about baseball and they confiscated that. And I wasn't quite sure why. We weren't allowed to show any disrespect on the trip for Juchi, which is their ideology of self-reliance. So no disrespecting the great leaders, 
Um, even taking photographs of the great leaders, you had to, if you were photographing a statue of them, it had to be from head to toe. You couldn't even you couldn't you weren't allowed to photograph just let's say from the waist up. Um, you weren't allowed to throw away any papers that had or rip up any papers that had a picture of the great leader on it. We couldn't take pictures of the military checkpoints or construction because that's managed by the military. Um, so, yeah, there were just a number of rules that we had to adhere to. I had a, a briefing call with the tour company before the trip, because especially because I felt that I was a higher risk tourist originally being from the U.S. Yes. I really wanted to make sure I knew the, the do's and don'ts. Um, but just, you know, go, but just going back to our actual um, itinerary. I remember we went to, I think it was Pyongyang's only Viennese cafe on our very first evening. Love a Viennese cafe. <laughs> yeah, there, there was one. And I mean, the, I remember that getting a cappuccino in North Korea was very expensive. It was like five euros. They, they're, they're sort of designated places where tourists are, are allowed to shop. And that's always in, it was mostly in euros. And uh, those amenities were quite expensive. But in terms of other places that we visited, um, we went to Kim Il-sung Square, which is where if you see those military parades with the nuclear weapons or, or with the weapons that they're parading, uh, we got to see what that square looks like. And there were actual markers on the ground of where people are meant to stand. We walked around the streets of Pyongyang. The streets were, uh, you know, pretty empty. And we were there, you know, during the working day uh, on a weekday. So empty of cars or empty of people or animals? There were some people, not really that many, hardly any cars, very wide avenues. Um, so you almost felt like you were on a movie set, even though it wasn't a movie set. It was a real city. Uh, we went to a bookshop for foreigners where they had foreign language books um, about the great leaders and the DPRK. Uh, we visited the National Library. We, we paid our respects to the great leaders. There is a, a grand monument of two of the great leaders in Pyongyang, and we laid uh, flowers at their feet and bowed to them to show respect. Uh, we took the Pyongyang Underground, which is the deepest metro. It's the deepest underground system in the world, and it also doubles as a nuclear bunker. And is it amazing? Is it clean and efficient and quiet? And Very. I mean, it's not a very long train line, but yes, very sort of elaborate train stations with chandeliers and statues and really interesting artwork. We took the underground, which was also uh, an interesting experience because we were just like sort of in an underground with North Koreans. And surprisingly, people didn't really stare at us too much. What was also very interesting for me is we went to the Korean War Museum where, um, you know, I learned about the Korean War from a North Korean perspective. I'm growing up in the U.S., we actually didn't really learn that much about the Korean War. I think we learned more about the Vietnam War. So it was you know, interesting for me to just hear from the North Koreans who they believe started the war and sort of what transpired. Um, you know, they, they, they do have a heavy desire to reunify with the South. Um, but of course, it was uh, an uncomfortable experience being originally from the U.S. and seeing all of the weapons and tanks that were confiscated uh, from the U.S. Army that they have on display, um, posters of dead American soldiers. And there was even a mannequin of a dead American soldier with a crow pecking its eye out. And it's actually... That display where I learned that South Africa fought in the Korean War too. I didn't know that. Hmm. South Africa fought on the side of the Americans. And if I remember correctly at the museum, um, they had the American soldier having his eye pecked out. But then in the background, there were sort of, uh, I think, either flags or coffins with flags over them of the countries that fought with the Americans. And the uh, 
uh, old South African flag was one of them. Oh. Uh, and so, uh, which surprised me. And then when I left North Korea and, and got back to South Africa, I did some more research. And in fact, South Africa did fight with the Americans. And uh, there is a memorial in South Africa. I think it's in Pretoria for South African soldiers that fell in the Korean War. Wow, I didn't know any of this. Huh. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, we also visited, we, we went aboard the USS Pueblo, so in 1968, there was a U.S. Navy ship that went into North Korean waters, and it was posing as a U.S. research uh, ship. Uh, and the North Koreans uh, seized the ship, and there were 82 sailors who were held prisoner for almost a year. One, one was killed. When they eventually released the American soldier, uh, sailors after admitting their guilt, uh, North Korea decided to keep the USS Pueblo as a trophy. Uh, they didn't want to give it back. They saw it as a, a prize. So we boarded the USS Pueblo. And as I, as I understand, it's the only U.S. warship that's still being held by an enemy state. So you've just described these two really intense experiences of history from the North Korean perspective, both where America is, is clearly the opposition. But you're walking around speaking with a, a, an American accent. Yes, you have some nice flattened vowels, which is good from some time in South Africa. But to me, a clearly a, a recognizable American accent. Do any of your North Korean hosts or tour guides, do they ever ask you if you're from the US? Does Is that ever a problem? So I made a point during the trip of always introducing myself as South African. Ah. Uh, I was very, very nervous. Of course, on my South African passport, it says place of birth USA. So I mean, there's a, there, I couldn't hide that connection. The accent wasn't the issue. Very few people spoke English. And even if they spoke English, they probably wouldn't be able to differentiate between accents. But I mean, a, a few of the participants, you know, sort of outed me during the trip. So I remember there was there was one night when we were all having drinks with our North Korean guide in the hotel bar, and one of the tipsy British tourists made a comment uh, right in front of my tour guide, like, "Oh, Dan, what's it like as being an American here?" Ooh. And then and then and then we had another incident when we were on the bus, and uh, our tour guide thought it would be fun if each person came up to the microphone on the bus and sang their national anthem. And so, you know, the, the Aussies came and the Brits came. And then I went up and I was going to go sing in Kosi Sikalele Africa. Yeah, and then some, another tourist shouted, oh, great, Dan sing the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, you're so just like... I was, I was mortified. And listen, I knew that North... I mean, they knew that I was from the US. Um, there's no way that they couldn't have known. I mean, my place of birth, as I said, was in black and white. But it was just something that I didn't want to flaunt or bring up. There were just so many sensitivities... Uh, you know, being an American in North Korea. Uh, yeah. and, and, I, and again, because Americans in the past have allegedly been used as pawns, I just didn't want to put myself at any type of risk. I, I can imagine that that seems a very sensible approach, given um, the experiences you're having and given you know, the, the history between these two countries. So you, you went on board this warship. Was a lot of the tour structured around revisitations of history from the North Korean perspective? Was there entertainment? Was there singing or dancing? Did you do anything fun in the more traditional sense? Yeah. So, um, of course, a lot of what we saw was learning about history from a, a North Korean perspective. However, we also did some recreational activities. So we went to a bowling alley. I actually think it's the only bowling alley in Pyongyang. And we went bowling and it sort of felt like a like a Soviet, like 1970s, 1980s bowling alley. 
but it was with North Koreans and we drank beer and it was a lot of fun. Um, and it was also nice to just kind of do normal things, you know, with North Koreans because, you know, a lot, many of us felt quite tense during the week just because it was such a different environment. We went to the circus, which was, I saw just incredible, incredible acrobatics. Uh, but I remember that it was quite, you know, some of the participants were quite disturbed because they had bears boxing each other on their hind legs. They had trained them to do this. Oh, it sounds like something out of my deepest nightmares. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I, 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 I the, the, the bears weren't hurting each other, but I think that the tourists were quite concerned. You know, what did they need to do to train these bears to be on their hind legs and pretend box each other? So the circus was quite interesting. Uh, we also went to a village outside of the DMZ where we saw like a traditional Korean temple. So we did do recreational activities. We went shopping at uh, one of the state department stores. It was actually, Ill it's illegal to take North Korean money out of North Korea. So in the department store where foreigners are allowed to shop alongside North Koreans, we had to change our money from uh, euros or dollars into their local currency do our shopping, and then at the end of our shopping, change it back into foreign currency. Ah, okay. Um, so we did do some cool uh, recreational things. Um, the DMZ was fascinating, especially seeing the DMZ. Uh, so that's the, the border between North and South Korea, but from the North Korean side looking into South Korea. And DMZ stands for Demilitarized Zone, and for listeners, that's where... Trump recently went and um, he met Kim Jong-un in the demilitarized zone. Is that right? But that was after your visit, if I'm if I got my timing right. Yes, that was after my visit. However, we were in North Korea at quite a hopeful time because I believe President Trump had met with Kim Jong-un. I think it was in Singapore. Yeah, Singapore summit. There was sort of progress happening in terms of talks between the Koreas facilitated by the U.S. So there was a lot of hope. Just six months before uh, our visit, due to the talks that happened, they decided to de-arm the demilitarized zone. So none of the soldiers standing at the border had weapons anymore. Mm. Um, so there was a real sense of hope while we were there and a real desire to reunify the peninsula. I mean, I think for me, that was a big takeaway was it's truly tragic what happened on the Korean peninsula. I mean, they were the same culture with the same history. And because of politics, families were divided. They developed radically differently. And uh, there's some families that, you know, have been separated since the 1950s and haven't seen each other since. So this isn't natural that people from the same culture and the same land should be completely isolated from each other. Um, I mean, North Koreans uh, don't even listen to South Korean music. They're not allowed to. So you were asking about music. I found the North Koreans to be incredibly talented, very musical people. We would go to restaurants and our waitresses and, sh and the cooks would serve us our food and then they would go change into outfits and then perform for us. Um, and they performed all types of um, traditional Korean music. Uh, what surprised me was that there were very few cultural references with the North Koreans. So, you know, I kept on asking, like, have you heard of Taylor Swift or have you heard of Whitney Houston? And <laughs> I hadn't heard of any of these cultural icons that just about anyone in the Western world would know. As far as I understand, it is not allowed for North Koreans to listen to Western music. Uh, but really what they listen to is their own music. And I think North Korea has a pretty rich history of bands and music of their own. And they even taught us to sing some uh, Korean songs. Oh, okay. So you can sing us the one. I'm hoping you'll close the podcast with a, a rendition of a, a North Korean song. There were other things that were just, I mean, I mentioned the thing about the circus and how for us, 
through our Western eyes, we were quite horrified about the, the bears. Uh, but, you know, and for example, dog uh, is a traditional delicacy in Korea. And I didn't. I'm a father of two Dutchians. But some of my fellow tourists had dog soup. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the culture was just very, very different. I think what was made made some of us the most tense was, you know, we didn't have access to the outside world while we were there. So there was really no Internet, no cell phone, no cell phone signal. So you, you were really cut off while you were there. And I had absolutely no idea what was happening in the outside world during those four days. It must be quite an intense experience. We're so hyper-connected and used to sort of checking our news apps, updating every six hours. So it must have been quite a shock. It was actually one of my favorite aspects of the trip. Uh, I mean, I was forcibly cut off from the world and it really, uh, it, it forced us to be present. And there was so much to see. There was so much history and culture to experience that I'm really happy that I was present for all of it. But it was a bonding experience. I mean, People are nervous. We learn different things about North Korea at school. It's not a place that many people go to. And sort of scary experiences bring people together. Mm. And we, we really had a lot of fun as a group. Uh, I think it gave us a lot of food for thought. And I have absolutely um, no regrets going and seeing something that was so radically different from anything that I know. Um, and another, an another thing that we did that was very interesting was we went to actually pay our respects to the great leaders, their bodies are embalmed, as in many uh, communist and social in many communist and socialist countries. So we went to pay our respects to um, the, the, the tomb of um, King Jong Il and Kim Il Sung, his father. And are those um, amazing buildings? Do they have a sort of separate tomb that's a monument, or is it housed somewhere else? It's basically like a palace, mm -hmm. and people in North Korea throughout the country they make pilgrimages. Uh, sometimes maybe if they're lucky, even only once in their lifetime to, to pay their respects to the great leaders. Um, so it's a, a really beautiful palace with paintings of um, various things that the great leaders did during their lifetime. You could see uh, the train that Kim Jong-il used to travel on. Um, and then you went into a room where you saw their honorary doctorates from all over the world. And then uh, we we walked in sort of like two by two. And we bowed uh, to three sides of their bodies. They were in a glass display case. And in, in Korea, that's uh, how one shows respect. Three bows to different parts of the body. Yeah, I think it was to the to I think it was to at their feet uh, and at their sides, but not at the top of their head, uh, not at the top of, of, of the of the case, because that's not seen as respectful. And um, I mean, I've seen I've seen other other leaders who are also embalmed and displayed. So I've seen Lenin, I've seen Mao, but it was yeah quite incredible because especially King Jong Il is someone who was alive during my lifetime and who I remember seeing on TV. And then uh, yeah, we were able to pay respect to him just uh, like many other North Koreans were doing right next to us. So one of the things I find the most stressful about living in a capitalist society or capitalist societies is the ubiquitousness of advertising. It, it Sometimes it feels like there isn't room to just walk to the end of one's block without seeing an advert for Coca-Cola or Adidas or Nike or being told to purchase things the whole time. And one of the things that intrigues me about North Korea is it must be living in a society with, if not no advertising, then very, very little advertising. What was it like being in somewhere for four days where you aren't constantly 
constantly barraged with messages to buy things. Was it a release? You know, if I had to describe what it was like being in North Korea, it's what I imagine it was like to be in the 1950s. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so as I mentioned, no email, cell phones, internet, very, very little advertising. I don't really remember many adverts for, I don't remember ads really for products per se. Um, I remember more political slogans, sure. national messages. It, it was the only time in my life where I felt that I was stripped of all of those things that I consider to be normal. And you're again, you're just forced to be very, very present. I do think that, you know, capitalism is creeping into North Korea. So, you know, as I mentioned, I saw those business people, you know, checking in their electronics. We did go to department stores where North Koreans can shop and you can get Japanese products there. So I do think that capitalism is creeping in, but um, it still felt what I imagine the 1950s or 60s was was like. And and sort of the whole time I was there, I was like, wow, this must have been China like 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Yeah, yeah, Maoist China. And did they know anything about South Africa? I mean, could they ask you about our politics? Had anyone traveled there? What was the awareness of South Africa like? So um, they had heard of Nelson Mandela. If, I think there's actually a street in Pyongyang named after him. I, I really tried not to talk about any type of politics with them, uh, whether it be South African, American or North Korean politics. I really tried to connect with them on a human level. So talking about music, our love of animals, what we like to do for fun. I really tried to stay away from politics because, you know, I didn't want to break the rules. I didn't want them to break the rules. But as far as I knew, they, they, they did know what apartheid was and they had heard of Mandela. But I think that's it. And as I mentioned, very, very few South Africans visit North Korea. Um, I mean, I'm not even sure how much they know about the United States just because they don't have access to a lot of the outside world in terms of information. So would you recommend a visit to North Korea? <laughs> it's not for the faint hearted. But if you want to see a country that lives by a completely different ideology than anything you've ever seen, and if you'd like to really be cut off from the world and be present, even if it's only for a couple of days, it's a highly exhilarating experience. It's fascinating. Many people that I've told about my trip say, oh, you know, I would love to go, but I just can't. I'm too scared. So people are very, very afraid of going to North Korea. Um, I don't feel that there's anything to be afraid of as long as you know what the rules are and you follow them. I felt that I was treated with warm hospitality the entire time I was there. And because I knew I was following the rules, there was nothing to be worried about. So um, I do think it's for adventurous people, but I don't think it's really as dangerous as many people think it is. Okay. Dan, that was the most amazing encounter of a holiday um, I've ever heard. And hopefully next time you're just going to go to Cape Town and hang out in Camps Bay like the rest of Johannesburg. But uh, it doesn't seem <laughs> likely. What's next on your holiday list of uh, weird spots? So actually the following month after that trip, I went to Iran, oh, uh, which, is a whole, which is a whole conversation in itself. <laughs> um, also very fascinating. Um, I was meant to go to Sudan later this year uh, with the same tour company, but I, I had to postpone that trip just because I needed to be uh, somewhere else. So yeah, in terms of places I'd really like to go, I'd like to do Sudan. Um, I'd like to do Somaliland. I'd, I'd like to do basically most of the um, access of evil countries. <laughs> but, but, but practically, where am I going next? I'm, I'm actually going to Bolivia in December on holiday. 
Okay, well, that sounds... Which like... is the fourth, le- it's the fourth least visited country in South America. So at least, you know, it's not a super visited one for that continent. I'm picking up a theme of um, trying to get away from over-tourism. Absolutely. And again, I think, I think when you've been to many countries, you start to get more extreme because you want to see something different. You start to find that so many countries just resemble each other after a while. And so if, if you're really craving something different, you need to go to places where there aren't as many tourists. And, and, and again, just to reiterate, as you, you know, South Africans, especially, they, you know, they say, oh, it's so expensive for us to go on holiday overseas, the euro and the pound and the dollar. But the truth is, there are incredible countries to visit, like Iran, like North Korea, that are very affordable, even with the RAND. And that very few people go to. So if you just broaden your mind about your destination list, you can really get a bang for buck and and see some really neat places. Well, there you go, commute listeners. If you're getting really sick of uh, of going down to Margate uh, and hanging out on the south coast, drop Dan a line, and I'm sure he'll be able to advise you on a trip to one of the most secretive closed societies in the world. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. If anyone wants to get in touch just on travel advice or to hear about some other places I've been to, they're more than welcome to find me on Facebook. It's Dan Brotman, B-R-O-T-M-A-N. Fantastic. I'll put a link into the show notes as well. Dan Brockman, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. And um, hopefully we'll speak to you again in the future. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. Right, that's it for this week. I know it's been a tough week for South Africa with the xenophobic violence and just more bodies piling up in the war on women, all topics for discussion in future shows. But if you enjoyed today's episode, why don't you tell two people about it so we can continue to steadily grow our audience of commuters. I'm Jessica Van Anselen. Speak to you next time.